Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. When this episode was recorded, I was away in the US on a writer's residency, but Cassia spoke to Stig Abel, the editor of the Times Literary Supplement, at a live event in London. As well as being the current editor of the TLS, Stig is the former managing editor of The Sun and a former director of the um, Press Complaints Commission. We discussed his um, unusual career progression, how he plans to steer and flavour the TLS under his um, editorship. And also we had a very depressing conversation about the future of, of journalism in the Facebook era. I uh, obviously wasn't here, but I've listened to this and found it uh, completely fascinating. Um, Definitely a a curious career progression that Stig has had, uh, and also someone who's been on both sides of the journalism and public relations uh, fence with views from both of those areas. So I think this is a really interesting episode, and I hope you enjoy it. I was wondering if we could sort of start off in vaguely uh, chronological order and talk about your first job at the Press uh, Complaints Commission. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I left university and I had kind of two jobs. So I started at the t- writing for the TLS when I was 21. When I left the left university, I wrote to the fiction editor of the TLS and said to her, um, you don't know me, but um, I'd love to write book reviews. Uh, could I have a go, please? And uh, she very kindly sent back a book and said, can I have 600 words by six weeks' time? And I, so I wrote the review uh, and sent it back in. And then from then on, for about 10 years, I wrote for the TLS. Um, uh, and then, good thing about writing for the TLS, the, the money wasn't very good, but you, you, you do these reviews and other people are interested. So then I wrote for other papers as well, so the Telegraph, the Spectator, the Washington Post, and papers like that. And so the principle that I had in my mind, which I maintain that the paper now is, that uh, one of the functions we can, can perform is, if people write to me and say, I'd like to try reviews, I always remember what it was like to be 21 and, and try and do the same thing for them. So I was doing that sort of in parallel, and then I, I, I needed a job in London because I live, come from Loughborough in the Midlands, which you don't particularly want to stick around for too long in. And uh, so I needed to get to London, so I, uh, I looked in the, the Guardian, and there was a, a sort of entry-level job at the Press Complaints Commission writing decisions against newspapers. So I thought, oh, well, that sounds like a profitable use of an English degree. It's At least it's got writing in it. The money was just about manageable to live on if I didn't eat and uh, I stayed in the hovel so I did, <laughs> so I did that uh, and the PCC turned out to be this very small difficult organisation that was responsible for dealing with complaints about the whole press and it was there's t- 12 of us virtually everyone were in their 20s and 30s um, who'd come out of university with a similar sort of ambition to me uh, and then I stayed there for 10 years and uh, because it was so small it, you end up sort of moving up the ranks quite easily um, and I, I sort of started running it uh, in 2009, in 2011, so, so 10 years after I joined, I, I, I was running it, at which point the Leveson inquiry happened and uh, all of the attendant palaver. And so I, the, so I, I said, I've got to leave here. I've been here 10 years. It's, it's kind of unsustainable, but I'll do the Leveson inquiry. So I, I, I wrote the longest submission to the Leveson inquiry of everyone, 140,000 words which is basically a, a book. It's an incredibly shit book. Uh, if you ever read it, I wouldn't recommend it. So it's me and a lawyer uh, is sitting in a room with a couple of other people from the, the organisation for sort of three weeks writing this thing. And so I did that, the sort of final submissions of here's why the PCC didn't quite work, here's issues about self-regulation, and freedom of expression, all these very 
insurmountable clashes uh, that go on. Um, and then I, I left. So I spent 10 years regulating in a very, very loose sense of the term, not really regulating, dealing with complaints about the press um, while I was trying to pursue a kind of freelance career of sorts as an arts, arts journalist. Your, your career there sort of really um, spanned this, you know, this real debate, which sort of started off in 2005, 2006, and then, as you say, sort of really sort of got going in 2011. I mean, what was the atmosphere there? I mean, you say it was incredibly small. There were only 12 people. It was, I mean, it, in lots of ways, it was, it, was, it was fun in a kind of brutal way. I mean, one of the things we did when, after about four years, we set up this helpline for people who are being harassed by journalists, and often the problem with journalism is physical behaviour of journalists. There's problems with publication, of course, and, but it's the behaviour of journalists that causes disquiet, and particularly if you go to, if there's a big event happens. So I went to Whitehaven after the shootings there. You go and talk to the, the people, and they don't like vans, they don't like the broadcast vans, they don't like being asked questions if they don't want to answer questions. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. So we set up this system of you could call us any time, day or night, and we would send a message to either a specific newspaper or every newspaper, and then every broadcaster, because broadcasters don't, aren't regulated in advance like that. And so that sort of thing was going on, but it basically meant I didn't switch my phone off for six years, and on Friday nights you'd have calls from people because the Sunday papers were looking mm. at stuff. You'd be sort of... Rep- I remember Tony Blair was... was he, around? Yeah, he was still around then, and his his person used to hate the mail on Sunday and the mail on Sunday would contact them at Friday about six o'clock with the latest anti-Blair story. Then I'd get a call at about nine o'clock on a Friday night from Blair's spokesperson saying, this is what the mail on Sunday are doing, you've got to stop them. And then you're in this very difficult situation as you always are between free speech and the right of people to to say things and, and legitimate rights of privacy. And sometimes it's Tony Blair, which is kind of, has its own challenges, but sometimes and more often, I suppose, it's someone with no claim to fame but who's happens to be dra- dragged into a news story through no fault of their own. Um, some of whom they want to speak, sometimes they, they don't. And then we kind of became this organisation that didn't deal with big things very well, didn't deal with phone hacking very well. But it did deal quite well with these sort of daily interactions between journalists and uh, members of the public and this daily tension which is irresolvable between a sense of free speech and a sense of regulation. You can blur the line, you can get to a grey area in the middle, but you can never fully ever answer that debate. Mm. And PCC stuck around for 20 years, uh, all in all. It answered some things well, some things badly. But the, ans- the questions are still going on now. The only way they'll stop is as newspapers become less and less relevant, it'll be less and less of an issue because the problems of newspapers are now dwarfed by the problems of um, caused by f- Facebook and fake news and the like. You know, newspapers are now tiny little minnows swimming in a gigantic sea where Facebook is, is outranks them by such a large amount that the notion of, sort of powerful newspapers, I think, is heading towards um, conclusion. Do you think there's um, sort of the, the lessons um, that you learnt um, while uh, working at the, um, the Press Complaints Commission and sort of spoke to Leveson about and put forward in your, in your in your document have been implemented since or do you just think that really it's as you say now so beside the point that it, it doesn't really matter either way oh I think things got I think the, the Leveson inquiry was kind of interesting because in some ways it was very really healthy because editors generally speaking uh, are very arrogant people who never get challenged publicly and, and in some ways they're completely divorced from reality so when you're a very powerful editor you get chauffeured into work 
you sit in your, uh, at your desk uh, where everyone's kind of terrified of you. If you say, I want this to happen mysteriously three hours later, this is not the TLS, I mean, <laughs> editors of national newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the TLS is not like that at all. Uh, but editors of big national papers, that's what their life is like. That, you know, someone does their dry cleaning, someone does their shopping, they get chauffeured in, they get chauffeured out, and then uh, everyone does what they say. And that world is a very unreal world. Um, and so the Levis inquiry was kind of healthy in the sense that it dragged them into a courtroom where they had to answer questions they didn't want to answer, and that process was kind of salutary, uh, I think. Levison then tried to make all sorts of recommendations which were never going to work in the world where the internet exists, and trying to sort of capture print regulation in a world of, uh, of multiple platforms is kind of impossible, and was always going to be impossible. But I think the process was kind of salutary, and I think behaviour in some areas got better. The issue of phone hacking and payments to police was also kind of resolved by the courts. Phone hacking was very clearly illegal and then people stopped doing it once someone was prosecuted and payments to police, which is a problem I confronted when I went to The Sun, because we had 40 journalists on facing prosecution. That was changed by the arrival of the Bribery Act, which for the first time really made clear what you could and couldn't pay for, which mm -hmm. again was another line in The Sun. So. I think things have got better. The nature of journalism, the nature of popular journalism, means there'll always be friction points, I think. So you'll never get perfection. I think things have arguably got better over the years. I mean, having been through this experience at um, the PCC and, and Leveson Inquiry, you then moved on um, and went to a communications agency in yeah. 2012? Yeah. I did crisis management for two years. And what does that entail? Well. God knows, really. I wasn't. Re I, I, I don't know how many people have worked in PR because it's an obvious sort of parallel with writing. It's a. There's lots of good about it, and the people who do it, I think, are very good, clever people. It's very relentless business. You're constantly searching for businesses. There's, there's a sort of massive, constant churn of looking to find uh, work to bring revenue in. So, but the job of crisis management, which I I quite enjoyed, because PCC had always teetered on crisis for pretty much the whole time I'd been there. And I'd had to go and defend it on TV shows and radio shows and to journalists. So I dealt with journalists who were hostile to me. I'd also dealt with editors who needed advice from me. So I'd kind of gone all the way around <laughs> newspapers to various angles they could come at you. Um, so I used to go into companies or individuals when something had happened and try and help them make good decisions. I mean, in some ways, it's, it's slightly fraudulent because all you, it's really common sense stuff. But you'd amazed how people don't think about it, which is, you know, don't talk to a journalist until... You have something to say. If you've screwed something up, just say, sorry, I've screwed this up, but this is what we're doing to fix it. Actually, even better, make sure you are doing something to fix it before they come knocking. What happens in, in, in companies that I saw, they freeze when anything goes on. Anything goes wrong, they get paralysed, they make really bad decisions, and you, know, you could see that actually in News Corp with the phone hacking was the kind of classic example of that. So I used to go in and say, try and get everyone in a room, what's actually happened, what have you done wrong, what is it unfair to say you've done wrong, Let's defend that, not defend that. Make sure we're dealing with people properly. Because, again, you find people's ordinary processes mm. just get paralysed. and so None of it was very complicated. I mean, the, I, nine tenths of crisis PR would be just saying to someone, don't say anything. Um, it's not a great commercial prospect, I recognise that. And so <laughs> <laughs> uh, but largely, that would, we, that would also so work. So it was, it was trying to help companies and individuals who were getting in a scrape to give them a bit of... Sort of, but very commonsensical advice. Here's what you should. Here's what you should do when the press come calling. And having worked there, and also sort of on the <coughs> other side of things at um, at PCC, uh, did that affect your view of journalism and 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 whether you wanted to to carry on writing and, and be part of that world? It 
not really in that I'd seen quite a lot of journalism. The one thing it did remind me of, and I used to say that at the Sun, and it's less of an issue for us at the TLS, but you know, I'm still very conscious of it. Arrogant journalists are a really unattractive thing. And um, people in PR are just trying to do a job, people in all sorts of things. And, and you, you, you get it with some titles particularly, uh, very a sense of entitlement for senior journalists there. And I, I think not having humility is uh, a very ugly trait. And journalists sometimes, mainly because they have a legacy of being really powerful. But it's interesting, as the legacy shifts, as they're less powerful, maybe humility will kind of grow naturally. But I was conscious a bit in that world, and the PCC, uh, that sometimes journalists can be a bit brusque and a bit entitled, and that's not particularly attractive. So you're at um, the agency for just over a year. Yeah. What prompted your move to The Sun? And was it a, a very natural move? Not um, really. Were you a fan of the newspaper before? I, 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 what happened was, when, when I was at the PCC, the editor of the Scottish Sun used to call me for advice. And, and I, really the advice would you know, is this permissible to publish? And if I said no, I hear the reasons why, they genuinely wouldn't. So I had quite a good relationship with him and he became the editor of The Sun. Meanwhile, The Sun had 40-odd journalists being prosecuted. They'd gone through Leveson. They had all sorts of problems internally having to deal with that. So they needed someone from the outside who could come in with no real baggage to, to sort of help sort out their internal processes, help their people, and, and that sort of thing. And so I wasn't loving PR. Um, I had a fond, fondness for, for The Sun in the way that a lot of people used to have perhaps more than they do now which is it was always fun it was clever with words it, it, it had a certain spirit about it which was there very much when I got there and so I, I thought it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of a weird change in some senses but an interesting challenge they had and they had lots of things that I thought I could I could help with and so it was a relatively straightforward decision to get out of PR and then when I got to the sun and met people there and people were lovely and uh, supportive and kind, and actually kind of shell shocked because it had been a they they'd seen forty of their colleagues arrested um, for doing things which you can have an argument about the ethics of, which is perfectly acceptable. Should you pay a public official for a story, it's a perfectly legitimate thing to say. No, you shouldn't. But it was never been regarded as a criminal defence before offence before the law they were being prosecuted in was from 1903. No one had ever been prosecuted by it. They'd been given what they felt was advice that they could do. So they felt, and advice, and the material had been handed over by the company to the police. So there was issues of trust within the company, and mm. there were all sorts of complications. And I felt I could at least try and be of some use to, to help people make better decisions, have a, have uh, a, a greater sense of responsibility. And I thought there was a kind of opportunity to do that. Obviously, um, the managing editor role is very, very different depending on yeah. the team and also yeah. um, the publication. What did it mean for you while you're at The Sun and did that change over time? No one really understands managing editors, Joy. I always call it it's just the grief department. It's basically you're responsible for a lot of the difficult stuff, so HR, employee, employee relations stuff, the budget, which is the killer one because budgets in newspapers are just going in one direction, so you're kind of the person responsible for cuts. Um, dealing with complaints, dealing with legal issues, uh, trying to improve the working environment, trying to help make people make decisions. And Newspapers are very patriarchal organisations, even when they're run by women, in the sense that everyone moves responsibility up the chain. So um, 
there's a kind of issue uh, which I find fascinating, which journalists gather stuff even if they don't necessarily agree with it, and then it goes to the news editor who puts it up, and if the editor chooses it, it's the editor assumes responsibility for everything. And it's very difficult to try and get people to try and make decisions each way up the chain. Um, so my, my job was to try and do a bit of that. I, I then um, I joined the, sun, the Sunday editing rotor, so national newspapers, obviously the editor <coughs> doesn't work on a Sunday because uh, they're too grand for that. So there's always a rotor of two or three people mm-hmm. who edit the paper Sunday for Monday where you go in, sort of skeleton stuff. Uh, to, to, to do that. So after a year, I, I did that as well. But I wasn't the editor. I mean, sometimes I get people saying, well, you were the editor of The Sun when you did this, that, and the other. And I, I wasn't in that sense. I wasn't the person choosing the stories that go in the paper or setting the... Managing editors don't sort of set the position on certain issues. The job of the managing editors is to kind of make the wheels keep turning. Okay. Um, obviously, while you were there, um, there were a few um, scandals. You already alluded to the fact that there were um, journalists sort of still embroiled in, yeah. in legal crises, which you had to, to help deal with. Um, and that, you know, there were other um, problems that came up as well, like um, no more page three. Um, well, and we got rid of page three. Yeah. At, in the time I was there, which was which was good. Was that a decision you were you were happy about? Oh yeah, I mean, God, I mean, and, and yes, and lots of people there there were, and it was a kind of strange thing as. You know, campaign groups are very good, but sometimes campaign groups pe- make people dig their heels in as well. So I think probably Page Three would have gone a year before, mm-hmm. maybe even two years before. But it there became this sort of slightly ridiculous. We can't uh, concede this point, and even though everyone kind of wanted to, so it was a good thing to do. It was a completely anachronistic thing that needed shifting, and it eventually did shift. Um, do you also think it has something to do with the identity of the paper and? Um, the fact that everyone has, um, you know, now that advertising revenues are falling, people want, um, people cling even more to what makes the paper special and have its identity, and, and was there, were there problems with, with that? I think there's always a fear that, you know, people buy papers for all sorts of reasons, and clearly some people liked it, and whenever you did focus groups on the subject, there's always a massive split. There were lots of men who liked it for obvious reasons, there was a, there was a strange sort of rump of women who, who didn't mind it and again felt that removing it would be a kind of concession to a group of people who they didn't agree with. So it was never as straightforward as most Sun readers didn't want it. I think most Sun readers weren't bothered by it. The extent to which people liked it was always mm. very, very hard to tell. Um, so there's, there's a lot, people buy newspapers for a variety of, I mean, if, you, if anyone has ever tried to remove a crossword from a newspaper. Mm. Uh, people just go crazy. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, or the gardening column, or stuff that you you don't pay any attention to if, uh, as an editor. You decide to shift it, and then you know a thousand people write it. That's the only reason I bought that paper for twenty years. I'm never <laughs> buying it again. I can't believe you've done that to me. <laughs> so when you try to, it's very hard always to explore why people do do get in, in, in into newspapers. But the experience of being at the same when people are on trial, and again, there's a kind of salutary thing that I think hopefully people had a, a greater sense of humility about when they report other people's trials. There's a sense that you can see what it's like. And I just have to stand at the news desk, and there'd be sort of 20 of us standing at the news desk, and there'd be a reporter in court, and the text would come in, the jury's back, and you'd stand around. And these people had worked with them for 10 years, 15 years maybe. Uh, and you'd sit there, stand there or around a, a, a mobile phone, and you'd be waiting to see the text coming in from the reporter, guilty, not guilty, of someone's life that would be changed irrevocably forever. And Again, there's an ethical debate about payment, but I, 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 this was never a very clear-cut criminal matter, as was demonstrated by the fact that in the end, 
one person was convicted and that conviction was subsequently overturned. So 40, well, 40 people were probably arrested, 20 odd were prosecuted, no one was ever convicted. But each time you sat there with journalists who were terrified that someone they knew was going to go to prison. And that's a very odd experience to, to have. And, 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 a, and a very chastening one. And, you know, nothing wrong with people being chastened and nothing wrong with, with journalists particularly, I think, because it's a very bullish, historically very arrogant world. But it, you do recognize that there's people, and I, you know, I have to talk to the families and, and all sorts of problems arise, arise when someone has been suspended for two years. Because once they were, when they were arrested, they weren't suspended. Once they were charged, we, we had to suspend them. And then the process, some, someone had two kids during the process of being arrested to being finally cleared at court. He actually had two kids in that time. So someone was, people were there for four and a half years. It's a very long time mm. to, to, to be experiencing that sort of thing. And there were also sort of two, um, well, um, probably more than two, but there were two sort of stories <laughs> yeah, that, were, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, um, that really sort of caught my eye, that I think that were sort of um, while you were managing editor. The first is the, um, uh, the front page headline about uh, one in five um, Muslim yeah. support for people who'd gone to fight um, for ISIS. I mean, what was the, you know, how can there be sort of this kind of, this disconnect between the, the public reaction to a story, and presumably this had gone through all, all the lawyers and, you know, the, the team looks at it? Yeah, I mean, that was done on a, that was done on a Sunday when I, when I wasn't there, and so I sort of saw it the day after. The problem about The Sun, and I think anyone who's ever worked at a, a tabloid particularly will tell you, it's true of all newspapers to a certain extent, you're writing in hugely broad brush strokes because a, a tabloid front page is a very simplistic, necessarily thing. You know, if you look at The Telegraph, there's probably ten stories on the front page. The Sun sometimes has one story. And so when you're trying to present material, it's very easy to overstate things on the front page because you're effectively trying to work out five words that, that tell a story. Um, that story, I think, was just overplayed. Uh, there was a story there. There was a survey that uh, that, that existed that, that wasn't c it, it wasn't made up, and there was some suggestion that it had been completely confected and made up, which wasn't true. And generally, my experience at the time there, while mistakes were made and things were overstated and things were were, were were hyped up, no one ever sat there and made stuff up. So it wasn't no one made that information up. It was it was twisted, I think, in how mm. it was presented, and that's sometimes the function of how things are presented on the front page. Had that story appeared on page nine, there wouldn't have been any complaints about it and it would have been presented more calmly and, mm. and there would have been enough there to, to, to do it. But it's one of those things where um, the manner in which it was presented was the thing that, that, that mm. caused. And, and, then there's a, and then there's a question of taste also. Lots of people can make the very legitimate point. Why are you doing this? There's no need to do this story at this point in this way. Uh, and, and that's always a legitimate uh, criticism. But again, People making editorial decisions at four o'clock in the afternoon and then again at ten o'clock in the evening. You talk to any editor who's done it; mm. they look very different at nine o'clock the next morning sometimes, and it's not a straightforward decision always. These things. And it sounds, um, because of your role, that you are often in the position of having to sort of explain these these things um, uh, or talk about them in in public. When you know, in the case of. Um, page three, you might not necessarily agree with them. That's still true now, I mean, and, and that's why I'm, I'm kind of, I get sort of abuse on social media about the sun still all the time, but I've still got loyalty to the, you know, I took the job, I made the decision to take the job, and although things were done, decisions were made without my knowledge uh, or 
that I wasn't party to, I'm, I'm slightly loath to, to sort of say, well, I, I would have done that. Mm. And, and though they may, it may be true or may not be true, but it's difficult because once you work for somewhere, you work for, for, for that, that paper and you've kind of got to be loyal to it. But it, some things are harder to defend than others, definitely. But like I said, generally speaking, particularly for, and this was much towards the end of the one in five Muslims thing, generally speaking, particularly for the first couple of years, there were times when we got things wrong and with times we did stupid things, but there was an awful lot of really good stuff that I could also mm. happily talk about. You know, we, um, there was a, um, a, a tsunami and, and we decided to run a campaign. We got Vodafone involved to give a quid for a kid involved in the mm. tsunami and the sun became the fourth largest country in the world in terms of the aid response. So the sun outperformed France in terms of its readers giving money and we did a campaign about women's refuges, which the government was shutting which we tried to keep open and we got them to concede that point. We did some stuff like that. We did a, the complete works of Shakespeare over a, a spread uh, for the uh, anniversary of Shakespeare's birth, which was all 36 Shakespearean plays summarised a, in, a, in a spread, which was very good. So there was, there was always, there's very good stuff. Sometimes there's the problems, but m my job was, if the problems had happened, to try and fix them mm. and to try and stop them happening too many times again. Yeah. But uh, you, you left there and then a month later uh, joined the TLS. It must have been quite, I mean, did you know you were going to leave? Yeah, I, I, basically, I basically said I was leaving um, after three years and um, I wanted to move on. And there was this suggestion that the TLS job would come up and no one necessarily would think, well, the manager for the Sun could become the editor of the TLS. It's kind of ridiculous. But I'd, I'd written for the TLS for 10 years. I'd stopped at some point in 2012, probably. But for 10 years, I'd written for them. And I heard this job was may or may not become available, so I wrote a little two-page thing of what I'd do with the TLS. Mm. And I sort of sent it in, and it bounced around the various upper echelons of News Corp, in sort of cobwebby corners. It's best not to look in too much. And uh, it came back, oh, that's got a good idea. Why don't we try that? And so I thought, yeah, this is kind of my dream job uh, that I didn't expect to get. Um, to go to a paper which I'd loved, which, which, uh, which I'd written for, which I, which I kind of felt, we might get to this, but I kind of felt had, this mo had a chance to be part of a new kind of zeitgeist, mm. this sort of countercultural expertise. And even before Trump and before Brexit, you could just start seeing this sort of flattening of news, a sort of cheapening of clickbaity stuff. There's always going to be a counterculture mm. that's created. And I think the TLS is a sort of great position to do that. And so... I was kind of desperate for it, and then it turned <coughs> out they were, they were willing to give it to me. I'm really glad that you brought up the two-page memo, because I'd read about it somewhere, and I sort of thought it was a myth, and I'm just I'm fascinated to hear it. What did it say? What were your suggestions? Yeah. <laughs> I have done some of them, weirdly. I haven't done all of them, because <laughs> I know, all, like, like all people, whenever you pitch anything, you never do what you say you're going to mm. do uh, at all. But what I said was, it was, um, the trick in the TLS is there's a very loyal subscription readership who may have read it for 30 years, some of which would be probably quite academic. You can't annoy those people because they're loyal customers and, and there's a certain amount of the product you've got to give to them. But there's also, I think, a vast number of people who uh, studied humanities at university, who've moved into other careers, doctors, lawyers, accountants, advertising people, who probably want to be reminded of a time when they could read books or, or could stretch their brains or, or could uh, have... Um, uh, challenges, sort of intellectual challenges removed mm. from their work and life often becomes work and family and there's very little room for anything else and I thought TLS has this opportunity to, to do that so I said we'll, we'll, we'll change by uh, addition not substitution so we'll still do 
the full breadth of academic subjects mm. and do proper reviews, but we can do personal essays from people. We can uh, do, we can be a little bit more political without being partisan. We can uh, tackle difficult issues, you know, celebrate free speech. We can represent writers from other countries who are being, having their free speech restricted. We can give them a voice. We and so the idea wasn't, it wasn't vastly complicated, but it was just to say we had this great institution, very strong, lovely paper, but it had not really been stretched for some time. And the opportunity to just stretch it uh, and then hopefully find an audience of people, both male and female, it had skewed male for years, uh, which was needless, and we could, I felt we could probably rebalance that a little bit as well. Um, it was just a chance to, to, to like I said, change by addition, not substitution, and, and find this audience, which I kind of believe is out there. And if you look at intelligent magazines like The Economist, or The New Statesman, or The Spectator, or this growth. I mean, I, I, I've been around newspapers for a long time. Mass market newspapers have been in decline for years. Mm -hmm. But subscription-based, long-read, intelligent stuff, you know, with a niche, clearly defined niche, I think there's growth. And so the chance to be part of a growth, and I was just saying, now, we should be ambitious. We know we can sell more, we can, sell, we can print more papers mm -hmm. and sell more of them. Mm -hmm. That feels doable here. Uh, and in fact, our ABCs are out um, tomorrow, and it has happened. It is doable to expand the audience a little bit. So it was there was, it was a genuine two page, but it was, no, it wasn't. It was quite top line, but it's just here are some just let's jolly it up a little bit. There's a big difference between knowing there's an audience or feeling that you know that there's an audience there, and actually. Um, getting them to subscribe or, or to buy. Yeah, so I've not cracked that entirely yet. To be <laughs> um, no one has. I'm no, intrigued to hear yeah. how, you, how your steps to get there. Well, just things like, I mean, I'd said, well, how many shops are we available in? And they'd say, oh, we've been in the same 1,500 shops for forever. And, so, well, and then looking at where we sold out in those shops, well, maybe we could sell some more copies in there, or why don't we go into these shops, or why don't we use this, you know, metric? what have we done with Times subscribers? Mm. You know, what, what have we done... Um, to, to really find out where the audience is. What's our retail ceiling, for example? Because people just think that people won't buy print products anymore because for lots of newspapers it's not true. But for magazines, certain types of magazines, I think it is true. So more retail. And then digitally we had a very hard paywall, which is correct, I think, and understandable, but we therefore didn't try and get our story out there. So well, I launched a newsletter really quickly. We've got 20,000 subscribers. I launched a podcast which is great because you use TLS writers who are experts and they come on and they talk about stuff mm -hmm. they know a lot about. That's doubled every month in audience. So that's, and I was saying to you, this your podcast is brilliant. Niche podcasts which know what they are, I think is a real future. And whether you can make money out of them is a slightly different point, but you can use them to make people think, oh, I'm TLS, yeah, I've not really thought about that for mm -hmm. very long or ever. And so, um, you know, our traffic has increased by tenfold in six months. Mm -hmm. Our social engagements increased by eight fold um, there was a it was a kind of low base to go from and just doing sort of hygiene stuff like what's our Twitter mm. presence what are we giving out <coughs> starting commissioning free stuff so if we make four of our stories free every week let's commission ten free start stories that talk to them in some way mm -hmm. that will just again we're not trying to we're not trying to hold the paywall so firm we just want to get people into the site bouncing yeah. around a little bit make sure they go from reading one article to two articles, from two to three, from three to four, and then mm -hmm. eventually, hopefully, they'll hit against the wall and then, well, I quite like this stuff. Maybe if I give them a special offer there, maybe they'll come and subscribe. And we're still mm -hmm. relatively early in this process, but all I wanted to do was just say, there is some good stuff here. 
Um, I just want people to see it. And no one had really tried this sort of stuff really at all. So the time sponsored the Cheltenham Festival, Literary Festival. And so we had the idea, well, we, why don't we produce a free version of the TLS with four new pieces and then mm -hmm. the best of the year before. And we produced it, we gave out 40,000 copies and we found advertisers for it. We made money. I mean, not a lot of money, but we, mm -hmm. it was a thing that we'd do anyway, but we made a bit of money from it. Um, I just want to constantly do that because I really fundamentally believe that the paper is good. The people who work there are fantastic. Um, and it's a great mix of people, the, you know, age range, gender splits really good. I was slightly mm -hmm. worried it'd be a sort of 90 year olds in the Athenaeum type thing. It's not like that at all. There's lots of really interesting people of all ages and, and, and like I said, about 50 50 gender split. But again, what they want to do is they just want to write stuff, commission stuff that they care about. Mm -hmm. And if they're interested in it, people like them will be interested mm -hmm. in it. And there's a lot of people like them here in England, UK rather, and then in America there's a whole bunch more and you know a third of our subscriptions in America and you know there's probably 25 million people in America who could theoretically be TLS readers. Now mm -hmm. we'll never get a fraction of them or more than a fraction of them but that's potential to me yeah. and it's just trying to find different ways. So we've done a deal with the Wall Street Journal for students. So they have a student deal at $49. We've said for $59 you get the TLS and the Wall Street Journal digitally. We'll try that in America. Can we get students, MBA students, students to, to try and get the TLS digitally? I mean, mm -hmm. maybe four people will do it. Maybe 4,000 people will do it. Maybe 40,000 people will do it. I don't know. And half the things we try won't work. I totally get that. But I just, I kind of really feel <coughs> enlivened by the notion we can just try some stuff. And with a bit of luck, enough of it will, will come off that we can grow. And then if we start growing, you know, there's a, that can carry on, hopefully. Well, you mentioned that you have um, fantastic uh, articles and fantastic writers talking about incredibly diverse and interesting things. And one of the pieces that you um, published recently is the new um, Pragmatism by Paul Collier. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering if you could um, explain what the article's about and, and, and what it feeds Yeah, about. it's a great, I mean, this is a good thing. I mean, this was commissioned by uh, our fiction and is also our politics guy. It's like all smaller organisations. Everyone pretty much does everything. Mm -hmm. Um, but we had an we had an economic so the TLS is themed every week. You wouldn't necessarily always know it for advertisers. So uh, we have an advertising guy who sits with us, and then he sells adverts for the paper. And so we give him a theme every week. So it might be economics, it might be classics, it might be history, it might be music, or and so he tries to set. So we knew we were doing an economics issue, and we got Paul Collier, who's an econ economist from Oxford, and we wanted him to write. There's loads of books about how capitalism's over. Well, that's probably not true. Uh, and so we said to him, well, can you look at these books and then come up with a theory of why, whether capitalism is indeed dead and if it's not dead, what... Dead? And he came up with this great piece of work which is about his view of sort of maternal capitalism rather than paternal. And it's the, where the state intervenes, but intervenes in a sensible fashion because the great debate about the free market versus intervention has always been a, a, a untrue, fundamentally untrue, because there's never been such a thing as a free market. We've never had it in this country. There's always been intervention, the sort of Keynesian view of economics was, was obviously considerable intervention, but the second we bailed out banks uh, where we said all your profits are yours, but when you make losses, we'll bear them. The second that was decided as a concept, the notion of free market is kind of dead, if it ever really existed, which I don't think it did. So in that sense, interventionist capitalism is kind of born, 
and, uh, and recognised across all spectrums. So the Tories are talking about infrastructure <coughs> projects where they'll borrow for it. Trump is talking about a trillion dollar infrastructure project borrowing to intervene. Mm -hmm. So the left-right split is the thing that Paul Collier thought we should get rid of. And so he had ideas like his central on, on tax was fascinating to me, which was you tax on context rather than on income. So if you tax rich people too much, right-wing people say you're killing aspiration, you're stopping job creation, you're stopping the trickle-down. So instead of saying all rich people are equally taxable, you make a decision between people who are, are rich and whose wealth contributes to society. So they might own a, own a factory or they might be part of a, an ecosystem where they're contributing. They employ people. Their riches are spread around to a certain extent. But people who inherit wealth, particularly in a London property market, which is completely artificial and overblown, um, you should tax them differently because they are not contributing. Their, their wealth is, uh, is inherited, not earned. It doesn't spread the largesse anywhere else. So you could reasonably tax them differently. So you tax on context rather than income, which I thought was a really... And then you end up actually with right-wing and left-wing people kind of agreeing with it. Mm -hmm. Because the thing he diagnosed, which I think is really interesting, is this... Britain is obviously, and it doesn't take me to point this out, more divided than ever. It's divided, mm -hmm. and you see it in Brexit, but it's divided geographically. It's divided between rich and poor. But the geographic thing is fascinating. Um, London is a completely artificial place, particularly if you're, if you're wealthy. And I saw this statistic, which was that if you look at GDP per capita since 2007, so since before the banking crisis, um, every other region in Britain other than London and the South East is poorer now than it was in 2007. So 10 years, no growth. All the growth that you see about you know, the booming economy is just located in London and the South East. That is not sustainable in the end because that level of division is going to cause societal implications, one of which was Brexit, which to a certain extent was a revolt against entitled uh, professional classes in Westminster and therefore in London. You see it with Trump, entitled professional classes in New York and Washington, people in the countryside, people in small towns dislike it. You can maybe see it in France, 60% of all French people live in small towns or villages. Mm. So the realm of Le Pen is the realm of people who look at Paris, look at um, the people in Paris, and they think that's not really part of our world. And so what he's trying to do is to try and recognise that division exists and then come up with an interventionist mechanism. Now, whether it's doable, there's all sorts of problems, but at least it was a surprise. I find it fascinating, this approach to say, you have to intervene in some respects, so yeah. how can you do it? We hope you enjoyed that. Uh, now, a quick update from our lives. Simon, what have you been up to? So, uh, excitingly, I finished the first draft of my book. Uh, very much a first draft and lots more to do, but glad to have got that in. Uh, wrapped up a magazine piece as well. And now um, working out what needs to be done to take that first draft through to a finished product. Cassia, what about you? I am dreaming of having a, a first draft of my book. I'm still several months out. Um, not helped by the incredibly hot weather that's making it very difficult. Uh, to concentrate and work on um, on books and, and notes. What is the shed situation, Cassie? The shed is now complete. Uh, it, it doesn't have electricity, but who needs electricity? I work with books and notes anyway, so <laughs> it's candlelight only. <laughs> if you have feedback on the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us at alwaystakenotes.com or you can tweet to us at takenotesalways.
This episode of Always Take Notes was produced by Olivia Kralin, Ed Kiernan and Liz Davies. Music was by Jess Danheiser. And we've been your hosts, Simon Acom And Cassia Sinclair. Thank you so much for joining us and we can't wait to have you back with us next time. Thank you.